0: for our third and final evening of this little reflection at the beginning of the season of Lent. It's uh, just a little recap. We started on Sunday with Almighty God. God who created us, who knows us intimately, more than we know ourselves, as Saint Augustine reminds us. And God speaks to us, calls out to us at every day of our lives, no matter where we are in our life of faith, or if we have no life of faith, God continually invites us into relationship. Into communion with himself and with each other. So we start again with God, the Trinity. And then yesterday we kind of descended into the muck of kind of human existence. But we saw that even in the muck, there is light. And here's my little nativity scene again (laughs) with the tiny little infant. (laughs) Because of the incarnation, because of God's grace that pervades our world, pervades our lives, that provides the light, that provides the, the hope, in the midst of sometimes the craziness of the world. And I put a little caveat on that because I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the goodness of the world and the goodness of humanity. Um, and I can honestly say this evening that, and I don't know if Father Stewart would be, it would be interesting to ask him the same question. I can honestly say that in my life, I've seen ter- like terrible things and I've, I've experienced bad things, as all of us have. But I don't think I could ever pinpoint having met someone who was totally consumed by evil. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that. It just means if it does happen, I have never experienced something like that. Maybe if I did, I would have a different opinion. I don't know. But I am a sincere believer in the goodness of creation, in the goodness of the world, in the goodness of our culture. There are bad elements in it, certainly. Um, And the goodness of the human heart, of humanity. I think most of us are just striving to do the best that we can in a very complicated world. And we as believers are especially fortunate, especially fortunate to be aware of God's companionship as we make that journey to know in our hearts to have experienced, to have felt something of his mercy and his love in our lives. I couldn't imagine a life without that. So yesterday we were in the muck. And tonight, hopefully, we will continue the journey um, that leads ultimately to... Calvary. Before we continue back in our return to Almighty God. So I'd like to start this evening with another text from sacred scripture and you'll recognize it immediately. This is taken from 1 Corinthians. I shall show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything that I own and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient, it is kind, it is not jealous, it is not pompous, it is not inflated. It is not rude, it does not seek its own interests. It is not quick-tempered, it does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing if tongues they will cease, if knowledge it will be brought to nothing, for we know partially and we prophesy partially but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. When I was a child I used to talk like a child, think as a child, reason as a child and when I became an adult I put aside childish things At present, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror. But at that point, face to face, at present, I know partially. But at that point, I shall know fully as I am fully known. So faith, hope, love remain, these three. And the greatest of these is love. It seems to me that that text is one of our favorites as believers, as Christians it's used all the time in weddings and sometimes when i think about it you know another one of our favorite texts is john 3:16 for god so loved the world that in the fullness of time he sent his only son for god so loved the world for we as catholic christians love is kind of the fundamental virtue value And we are drawn to that because I think it hooks that emptiness that we feel inside of ourselves. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. It hooks that restlessness, and it pulls us toward greater communion, both with God and with one another. And we get in trouble, I think, when we kind of misuse that or misunderstand it in various situations in our lives, or we don't know in a particular context, what it is that God is calling us to how it is to love in a particular context. Think of the Pharisee from yesterday, right? He was doing everything that he should be doing. He was fasting, which is good in the season of Lent. He was praying, which is good, necessary in the season of Lent. He was tithing. He was doing everything right, but there was a piece that was missing. And it was not external, it was internal. And whatever that piece was, the tax collector had it. And for us as Christians, when we look at this, this um, our spiritual lives, our lives of faith, the journey of faith, I think we ask ourselves every so often, especially with the change of liturgical seasons, we ask ourselves, what can I do What do I need to do to strengthen my faith life, to be a better person, to grow in my relationship with God, my relationship with others in my life? And Lent is penitential. It's designed to be a time when we kind of look at ourselves a little bit more critically. This passage from Corinthians, One of the things that strikes me about it, we love it and it's beautiful, it's poetic, it's comprehensive, it speaks to those two fundamental commandments that God has given us. To love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. First, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the fulfillment of the law and the teachings of the prophets. That's kind of the heart of Jesus' teaching. One of the things I think Corinthians or St. Paul in Corinthians reminds us or kind of pushes us on, he says, if we do all these things, but we don't have love, we're accomplishing nothing. There's a sense in that, that if you have two people who are doing the same action, whose external work is the same, and one of them is doing it from a place of love, and the other is not, then the impact of that is going to be totally different. The meaning of that act is going to be totally different. Because the one is done with love. And it's hard for us, I think, at times to get our mind about that. What does that mean? What does that look like in the midst of our lives? Because we work hard, We work alongside many people who are not believers, and sometimes they seem to excel. We live in neighborhoods where we are surrounded by people who are not necessarily believers, or who once were believers, people in our families. But this text kind of challenges us It challenges us to be a little bit more intentional and a little bit more comprehensive in our application of that commandment to love. So that it's not limited, it's not in a box that we love only those who love us back for even the pagans do that. That our love is constantly expanding It's growing both in depth and in quality, for lack of a better word. Mother Teresa, early on in her second career, so she joined the Sisters of Laredo in Albania. She was sent to India. As a missionary, she taught in a very wealthy school, as we mentioned, and she had that experience, this kind of conversion experience on the train while riding up to the city of Darjeeling, I think, in 1946, I believe, I think it was December of 1946. And she had this experience and it was so strong, it was so powerful that she kind of, in a way, abandoned her vocation. She left her religious community. And in the 1940s, that was a big deal. And she embarked upon an entirely new ministry. Now she had permission. And she eventually would establish another religious community. The Sisters of Charity, I believe, that have since become a huge success within our church. But she started out very, uh, in very humble circumstances. I believe there were only three of them that started out and they rented a room above a shop that was owned by a Hindu merchant. And he was very gracious to allow her to start this new adventure, this new endeavor using his top floor. And they had nothing, they had nothing. And they started out by going out into the streets. And one of them was tasked with begging for food to feed themselves every day. And the other two were tasked with finding people, which was not hard, finding people who were abandoned on the street. And Mother Teresa told this story that Really on, so they, were, they had just begun this new endeavor. And she, it was her job that day to find someone. And she had a wheelbarrow with her and she went out into the streets and it wasn't long before she found a, a woman who had been left on the side of the road and she was covered in sores, she was sick, she was hungry. And Mother Teresa gathered her up, put her into the wheelbarrow to bring her back to this room that she and the other sisters were renting. And her purpose was very, very simple. It was simply to be with her and to bring what comfort she could and that was it, to sit with her. And as they were going along, as Mother Teresa was bringing her back to her, her um, space, they were talking and the, the woman who had been abandoned, in the, she was in the wheelbarrow, she told Mother Teresa that the thing that, she, that hurt her the most was not the fact that she was lying in a gutter on the side of the road, was not the fact that she had open sores that hurt. It wasn't the fact that she was hungry or the fact that she was probably going to die. That was not what hurt her the most. She said the thing that hurt her the most was the fact that it was her own son who had left her there for whatever reason. And Mother Teresa said that the greatest form of poverty in the world is not a lack of food, a lack of shelter, a lack of education, a lack of clothing. She said that the greatest form of poverty in our world today is a lack of love. And that form of poverty we see all around us, no matter our social economic background. We see it in any community in which we are involved even the community of our own family, in our order, in our schools, a lack of love. And I believe that's one reason why we as Catholic Christians, as believers, we have something that is a priceless treasure to offer each other that costs, monetarily, nothing. A priceless treasure we have to offer to our spouses, our children, our schools, our parish, our world, every day, is to offer our love for people. And it seems so simple to say it, and yet we all know, of course, that it's complicated, and it gets complicated frequently. Um, there was a theologian um, around the time of the Vatican Council, just a little bit prior to the Vatican Council, um, a Dutchman, Van Balthazar, a priest, and He made the observation one time that in our society, meaning um, the developed world, that in our society, God does not receive the love from the world that God deserves. And we do not receive the love from the world that we need. And it's at that intersection that the church exists. It's at that crossroads where the church's mission and purpose is most fully at work. The love of God and the love of our neighbor. And our love for God through our prayer our personal prayer, our public prayer, through our worship, through our tithing, whenever it is, and our outreach to those in need, to those around us. And I think back to the example of Dorothy Day that I mentioned two days ago, where she was so impressed with how this Italian American community in New York City cared for each other. that it led her to start thinking about hmm, the Catholic faith. There's something here that she saw that she didn't see elsewhere. That she didn't find elsewhere, either in her many relationships, in her previous career, in the socialist community or the communist community, in government policies, in government programs, but she saw it in this community, in this neighborhood, in New York City, where, incidentally, the church was central. One of the things I I sometimes think about, and I, I don't know how much there is to this, so discard it if it doesn't fit. This is just me. Um, sometimes, I think, you know, we've seen this kind of increase in hostility or antagonism in our society in the last, I don't know, what? Yeah, 10 years, something like that, that has, has kind of grown. And I think of the, the abuse that the flight attendants on airplanes had to endure for a period there. It seemed it was like every time you looked in the newspaper, or on the news. Again, I'm dating myself right with my my whiteboard and a newspaper. I sometimes ask my students if they know what a newspaper is and they're looking like. (laughs) But for a while there, we would see this almost daily and crazy, crazy behavior. And I'm sure that many of us in our own lives have felt that over the last 10 years or so where we go to the checkout counter and the, we encounter some kind of like, I don't know, it's rude or it's, it's angry or it's intolerant of any kind of mistake. or I mean, it's just where it's almost as if the entire culture has been kind of on edge. And maybe that's what it is, I don't know. But I think about that parallel to this declining church attendance that has been going on for the last couple of decades in our society. And I wonder if there's a connection between these two realities in our society. as American culture becomes much more secular and we see this rise in a kind of lack of civility at best a lack of civility. I don't know, I don't know. The, but in the midst of all of that, I think Paul's letter to the Corinthians gains greater import and a greater urgency for us as a believing community and for our world to somehow reignite a spirit of graciousness, a spirit of compassion, a spirit of understanding that stems from a place of love, fundamental love for each other. Augustine, again, offers us two virtues that I think we, we see lacking in the Pharisee from yesterday. One, we've already mentioned humility. Right, he was so <laughs> kind of uh, inflated with himself that he, he couldn't see. Humility, a sense that we are imperfect that we don't have all of the answers. And I'm not speaking just simply individually, but as a community, as a church, a sense of humility before each other and especially before God. That when we come before Him, really, the only thing we can say. Is have mercy, because we are sinners, all of us. And yet, in that prayer, there is great power. There's part of the mystery of Christian faith is it's in that kind of humility, that openness, that reliance upon God. That allows God's power and God's grace to shine forth. God's love to be revealed. And so there's this kind of paradox. That in weakness. We are strong. As St. Paul says. That it this inversion somehow unlocks God's grace in the world, humility. And I think the second great virtue and perhaps the most fundamental virtue is this virtue of love. And it's a love that we're constantly learning Um, I, I, obviously, I'm not married. I, uh, I live in a religious community and have for, I don't know, 35 years now, lived with a wide range of people. And, you know, living together, as all of you know, living together is not easy. It's just not. And it's a constant kind of of, re-evaluation, some people have described it as a dance, a kind of a constant dance to make it work and to make it work well. Compromise, communication, humility, love, and it will, it will grow. We have, uh, last year, we had one of our brothers who shall remain nameless, who uh, he would butter his toast in the morning and he would, you know, he'd take the knife and he'd butter the toast and then he would put the knife back into the butter and, and leave behind a trail of crumbs <laughs> in the butter. And then the next guy would come down, you know, for breakfast and, and open it up and be like, and went on to this big crusade to find out who it was. That, <laughs> like, who it was that was leaving the crumbs and the butter. And so when we have our, we have a chapter meeting once a month where the whole community comes together and we talk about the big weighty concerns that face us. as. Ministers in the church as, you know, educators who have been entrusted with the lives of children. And, uh, and we spend the whole time talking about crumbs in the butter. Okay. It's uh, there's a, there's a kind of rub there. And St. Augustine, St. Augustine was obviously fully aware of this aspect of human Life, human existence, and he did not believe strongly in all kinds of ascetical practices, like other religious founders have through the centuries. He was not big on the, all that stuff. And you know, from the Middle Ages and before that, they, they went to some extreme on that hair shirts and you know kneeling forever and all that. He he wasn't into that because he says he believed that living together was the asceticism. <laughs> that was the the discipline that would bring us to spiritual perfection. It teaches us how to be better Christians, better spouses, better parents, better teachers, better priests, better people, people who hopefully are more loving than perhaps I was five years ago, 10 years ago. Augustine also says, we know that we are making, that we are advancing in charity when we put the needs of others before our own. We know we are advancing in charity when we put the needs of others before our own. And that's a wonderful way, I think, especially in the season of Lent to kind of do the examination of conscience, to take this passage from Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not judge, it is not jealous, right? and just go down the list. I tend to throw out the first one, love is patient because that one I, yeah, but it, right. Am I kind? Am I more kind today than I was when I first entered the order? Hopefully, am I more forgiving than I used to be? Am I more compassionate than I used to be? I, uh, I mentioned yesterday this rather startling fact that for every person who is baptized into the Catholic faith today, 6.4, leave the church. Um, the numbers of people who have been disaffected by the church is growing. In fact, the fastest growing population in the religious landscape in the United States are people who are former Christians, people who have left the faith. That's the fastest growing. And we see that primarily, though not exclusively, with younger people like tonight and there are all kinds of reasons for that some of it rests upon the shoulders of the church and the church's ministers some of it is the culture some of it is the individual But at some level that is irrelevant, not completely, but at some level, it presents a challenge for us moving forward as we continue in the faith that we love toward our ultimate destination, the destination for all of us, whether we believe or not. And there have been numerous studies and there have been numerous responses to it and all kinds of stuff about this kind of fundamental problem of evangelization in the United States today. And a number of years ago, one of our uh, priests, a former pastor of a huge parish up north, gave us this thing and it's called Going, Going, Gone. The dynamics of disaffiliation in young Catholics. It was published by the Center for Applied Research and the Apostolate in 2017. And it's, it's a fascinating little book. Um, it's their, their study of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, people who when they're asked their religious affiliation, they go down to the bottom of the list and they check the box that says none. And this thing, this study, says that the nuns, this group, and I'm sure we all know nuns, maybe our children, many of our families, um, relatives, neighbors, and they, they kind of divided them into three groups as to what their disaffection has been with the church. First group are those who have been injured by the church, Divorce and remarriage being a part of that. And instead of trying to go through the process, they say, I've had enough, and they leave. People who have been abused by ministers of the church want nothing to do with Catholicism. The second category are drifters. People who don't know if God is real. They haven't had any kind of experience that they would point to that says, this has been God at work in my life. Or drifters are people who say, well, what difference does it make? Why, why go on Sunday morning for an hour and sit there through a boring mass? Well, what, what, what good does it do? drifters and the last category are dissenters, dissenters, people who have serious disagreements with the church or they see the church as hypocritical and we know all the issues. I think what's becoming more and more of an issue is this um, LGBTQ development in our society. And people struggle with the church's stance on a lot of these issues that we're facing as a culture. And I think it's complicated. And some of it is a little beyond our control as a Catholic community, in the sense that media representations of religious faith in general, of the Catholic Church in particular, is overwhelmingly negative. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I asked my students to put together a little blurb. This was uh, a number of years ago, and it was an ethics class. Something that they were able to glean from shows that they watch. And one scene that they brought up, and I don't remember the name of the show, but it was about dating. And they were young professionals in this show. And the one person, the character in the scene, uh, was dating someone who was religious, who actually went to church. And the person said, and they kept saying this over and over again, I don't mind that they go to church. That's not an issue for me presented in such a way that it was exceptional, that someone would date someone who goes to church. And I thought it very, very odd that that would be something that could be an obstacle for someone who's looking for a real relationship. And there's a disconnect there, because in my mind, a person who goes to church is someone who will enrich life, make it better. But there's an element in the culture that sees that as an aberration. That's not something you really want in your life. And of course our young people are exposed to this over and over and over again in the media. And so that tiny little voice of faith from their parents, from the church, in the Catholic school, is just one little tiny voice that they hear maybe in this wider panorama. Um, Sex outside of marriage. absolutely accepted now. And to suggest otherwise, that a person wait until they're married is like, you know, you're not in touch. You live in the middle ages. And I'm not, I'm not being um, pessimistic, because I, as I said before, I believe in the goodness of people and our young people. I've been working in education for 30 years, and I have great hope for our future. It's just that we have, we have significant challenges that we have to face. And I think we find a response to the nuns, a response to our culture in 1 Corinthians. to love and to love as Jesus Christ loved, which is a pure love, a perfect love, unconditional love, a love without end, a love for everyone, for the tax collector for the woman caught in adultery, for the one woman who wasted all that oil at Bethany, for the poor, the hungry. Mother Teresa did not differentiate. She did not ask them to fill out a questionnaire before she would take them in. It didn't matter, it didn't matter. Uh, she, by the way, she told the story one time that uh, she had a little bit of medical training in her early years as a sister. And she, uh, she came across a person of, uh, um, that they had brought home and the person had a gangrenous finger and it was getting worse. And she had to cut it off, remove it. And she did, tough, tough nun. She took um, like uh, clippers, I know, I know, I'm sorry, it's a little, and she sat down and the, uh, the other person was opposite her and she had the antiseptic and the bandages and all that stuff and she took it and, and her first, she said the first um, to, to snip it off, the patient fainted one way and then she fainted the other way and they both were like boom. <laughs> But uh, she, uh, But it, it was a love that was just, it was given freely. And it didn't matter if they could pay it back. It didn't matter if they believed what Mother Teresa believed. It was a love that was given freely. And I think this is where we are headed in this season of Lent. We're headed to Calvary. And it's a dark, as we know, it's a dark journey. And we see all of the muck of human existence that's played out in, that, in those stations of the cross, in our readings in the season of Lent, as we near Good Friday. We see betrayal, we see abandonment, we see cruelty, inhumanity, intolerance, Jesus Christ did nothing wrong, and yet he was rejected by his own people. And there's a a, a Dominican bishop in France who has written about Calvary, and he says in there that at that moment of crucifixion on Good Friday, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus extends his arms to all of humanity, he says, I love you, and he dies. That cross is our symbol as Christians. We hang it in our bedrooms, It's in our central location in our churches. We wear it as jewelry on our necks. It's on our rosary in our pocket. We cling to that cross. And that cross is a little ambiguous, right? It represents suffering, violence, intolerance, hatred. The Romans used it extensively to Eliminate people, Jesus being one of them, and a terrible way to die. It represents the worst of humanity. And at the same time, it expresses salvation. It communicates love, perfect love. No greater love is there than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that I think is is the heart of Lent. It's the heart of Christian faith. While still in the muck, we catch glimpses of the light and we keep journeying toward Calvary. And this call that we have reflected upon this call to change is, in some ways, a call to keep loving more completely, to love more perfectly each day in our lives, to mirror something of God's love for us revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And I think the the journey of faith is precisely that. It's learning how to love in every situation in which we find ourselves. You know, a while ago there were those uh, bracelets that became, or wristbands that became real popular. What would Jesus do? There was something to that. When we find ourselves in a new situation or in an old situation that we have not resolved. And of course, the answer is one of the answers, the fundamental answer is to love, to love more fully. And I, sometimes I wonder again that we put ourselves into a box and we restrict that love. We do it to ourselves. And we come up with all kinds of reasons. They're lazy, they don't deserve it. They'll just do it again, whatever it is. And then we we kind of close ourselves off and we put a fence around us and our love does not grow, it kind of stagnates. And of course we know that relationships that stagnate, they really wither, they decline. I think true spirituality is focused upon this reality of the incarnation, that the spiritual life is about conforming ourselves to the life of Christ. I, uh, when I get a chance and I have the time to, to, to waste, I, I like going to, and you're gonna think, oh, he's the biggest geek in the world. I like to go to Barnes and Noble and just kind of browse. Uh, there aren't very many bookstores left anymore. Um, and I can't, I like Amazon. I get my shoes from Amazon. Can you imagine? (laughs) But uh, the the um, you can't. I can't. I can't browse on Amazon. So I like to go to Barnes and Noble. Or there's one in Tulsa, in South Tulsa. I can't. I don't think I can't think of the name of it. Just to look at what's out there. And this was maybe two years ago, three years ago. I. they had, a, you know, they have the little display tables out in the front when you're writing this for sale or it has a discount, 10% off or whatever. And I walked in and I was looking at one and it was a book that caught my eye, Five Ways to be Spiritual. Oh, right? <laughs> there it is. This is gonna be the answer <laughs> to everything. <laughs> Five Ways to be Spiritual. And I picked it up and I started looking through it. And I got more and more disillusioned and then more and more kind of disgusted as I went through it. Uh, The five points had nothing to do with God, nothing. God was not mentioned. Faith in Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing. And the five points ultimately we're all about making me happy. And the first one, I will never forget. The first of the points, here it is. You ready? Free of charge. The first one, to be spiritual. The first one is to treat yourself. And the author states in there it's not selfish. It's self-first. I'm not sure what the difference is. I don't I don't see that. And here it was on the table and right when we walk in. And I think what has happened is that there's been this movement in our culture that takes the trappings or the frame of religious life and sucks all the meaning out of it, and keeps the, keeps the frame. So I've heard a thousand times, I'm spiritual, but I'm not necessarily religious. Yes, I would agree with that. You are spiritual. You have a soul. We all have a soul. And that soul needs to be fed. And we can feed our soul, our life of, of, the, life of the spirit, inside of us in a number of ways. Creation, beautiful. To be down at the river at sunset, beautiful. That feeds the soul. Music, not all of it, but a lot of music feeds the soul. Relationships, of course, of course. Healthy, positive relationships, of course negative relationships can destroy the soul so yes we are all spiritual we're designed that way it's that piece of us that moves us toward god and toward communion our hearts are restless but it's a it's an empty spirituality It's a spirituality that will not satisfy. Because it does not lead us to God. It does not have God as its center. Now we can discover God, but on its own, it leads nowhere. And the church we have a special role in the sanctification of the world. And that role is not one of arrogance. Like we have the truth and you need it. So you need to, mm, that sounds like the Pharisee. I've done all these things and i thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. I think the sanctification of the world that comes through the church is found in the tax collector. That by offering our lives to Almighty God, by surrendering ourselves to Almighty God, by loving each other to the end, we allow God's grace, God's power to make us holy, to redeem us, to lift us up from the muck of human existence and to transform the world to change the world. So it's, it's a kind of a paradox, again, in faith, that our humility and our love can become instruments in God's hands for the salvation of the world. And I firmly believe, will draw the nuns N-O-N-E-S, back. They will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. (coughs) And God is intimately attractive. We just need a little taste. And that taste is us and our faith and our love and our hope in Jesus Christ. So um, just to kind of a, sum things up, you know, at, at school at Kasha, we have 45 minute classes and a good teacher, not that I'm a good teacher because I rarely do this, but you know, we start out with uh, the goals of the unit as we learn in teacher school, and then we do the thing, and then at the end of the unit or at the end of the lesson, we sum it all up, and then the kids supposedly learn. But um, the initiative belongs to God. We are Catholic, we are here because of God, God's will, God's desire to be with us, to be a part of our lives, which is beautiful in and of itself and leads us to that place of the tax collector, that God would choose me as I am. It, it starts with God. It moves to change, growth, openness, listening, the courage to be different. And it culminates in the love of the cross, the love that God has shown us to transform us and to transform our world. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, before I close, I do want to extend a heartfelt Uh, Thank you to Father Stewart, and to Sharon, and to Mike, Malcolm, and to all of the staff here at the Church of St. Mary, to all of you um, for coming and for your openness, your comments and uh, stories after each session. I have enjoyed it. And I wish you uh, a happy and a holy Lent. So thank you all. And I was asked earlier to, to share a blessing. As we conclude the mission, the Lord be with you. Please bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. May God bless and keep you. May God's face shine on you. May God be kind to you and give you peace.